Today's special International Women's Day episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunn Street. Dunn Street is a progressive campaign agency that specialises in community organising. We partner with businesses, organisations, trade unions and social democratic parties from across the globe to develop community organising strategies and train leaders to build power from within their community. And in 2022, Dunn Street will continue to work with folks that want to share their stories, inspire others to take action, give hope and organise communities for change. To find out how you can partner with Dunn Street, hit us up at dunnstreet.com.au. Today's special episode is also presented to you by Morris Blackburn. Morris Blackburn's dust diseases team have accumulated more than 20 years of experience in asbestos litigation and pride themselves on ensuring that their clients not only receive the best compensation result, but that they are supported during their stressful and traumatic time. um, Morris Blackburn are looking for a passionate full-time associate to join their dust diseases team in their Brisbane office. To apply, simply go to morrisblackburn.com.au forward slash careers. Do we even say forward slash anymore? I think we just say slash. We all know which way that slash is supposed to go. Hello and welcome to another episode of Socially Democratic, your weekly centre-left politics and organising podcast out every Friday that dives into the progressive campaigns and the people leading them from home and abroad. And this week um, is a special episode, as I said at the top. Uh, Twelve months ago today, we handed over our microphone to three leaders within their field, three incredibly talented and inspiring women um, from the trade union movement, from the legal fraternity and from the political wing uh, of the Labor Party. And uh, I think at the end of their show last year, they decided that they enjoyed it so much they would come back 12 months later and discuss how things have progressed for uh, women and for gender equity and equality in in the community and the issues that are confronting them at that time and obviously certainly in the last 12 months there's been so much to discuss so it'll be a fascinating conversation to hear from these three women and um, in a moment going to hand over the microphone to uh, Natalie Hutchins who is the Labor member for Sydney and she's a minister for corrections youth justice and crime prevention and she's also the minister for victim support I'm going to hand the microphone over to Julia Fox uh, who's the National Assistant Secretary for the SDA, the only trade union that represents retail, fast food and warehouse workers. And leading the conversation or facilitating the conversation is Liberty Sanger, who's a principal lawyer at Morris Blackburn Lawyers and she leads their National Personal Injuries Compensation Departments and has also been appointed uh, to as the chair of the Victorian Government's Equal Workplaces Advisory Council as part of their gender equality strategy. So I'll look forward to handing the microphone over to those folks in just a moment. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcast, Spotify and Stitcher. And if you like the show, be sure to give us five stars on Apple Podcast and on Spotify. If you're done listening to today's episode, uh, leave us a review uh, on either Apple Podcast or Podchaser. And for all the updates for the show, follow Dunn Street on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. Okay, let's hand it over to Liberty. Hi everyone, welcome to this special International Women's Day edition of Socially Democratic. It's great to be back with uh, great women leaders in Julia Fox and Natalie Hutchins. And thank you, Stephen Donnelly, for once again handing over the podcast to us to talk about uh, all the issues affecting women today. So let's get straight into it. Uh, International Women's Day, is it a day of protest or a day for cupcakes? 
Julia, what do you think? Uh, it is turning into a bit of a day for cupcakes, I think, unfortunately. I feel it's become quite a lot more corporatised. Reminds me a lot of White Ribbon Day where it was about raising awareness, but really what are we actually achieving? What are the outcomes we're changing, etc. I think it's at the moment on that cusp of the potential for a bit of gender washing. It's a good thing to say, well, we celebrate this on International Women's Day. We bring our leaders together. We do this and that. But really, what do you do structurally that changes the outcome for women? So I'm finding it a little bit, um, yeah, a bit uncomfortable about International Women's Day is the way it's progressing. So we think we need to reclaim it back for what it is, which is changing it for women and improving inequality for women. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a day to celebrate being a woman as well and whether that fits in with the kind of... um, kind of commercial aspects or not, it is it is genuinely a day where you get to stop and, and um, assess where things are at in terms of women's achievements and how far we've got to. So I'd say it's a, it's a bit of both. I always put on a, a morning tea with some of my locals and local residents and, you know, it always turns into a, oh, gee, I didn't realise, you know, that that was significant, that thing that I achieved. And it's a moment for some of these women to stop and say, oh, I'm actually doing a good job or give them a pat on the back for what what they've been doing in the prior 12 months. But also um, inevitably the conversation ends up being about, um, you know, women's equality or lack of and, and all of the hot issues that make everyone, every woman hot under the collar. Um, and sometimes that does lead to action. Okay, well, what are we going to do about it or get on board with this change? So, yeah, no, I think it's a great, it can be a great way in to the conversation for uh, women and men who haven't really engaged with some of the, the well, many of the issues that we're still facing. Um, but I think, yeah, you're both right. Like we've got to make sure that there is some action that comes out of it because there's a lot to be angry about. I mean, you know, when you start engaging with the statistics about where women are at with uh, leadership, with uh, violence, family violence, gendered violence in the workplace, sexual harassment, unequal pay, it's really horrific. And to think that this is where we're at uh, in 2022 is alarming. So I often wonder why we don't have uh, more people on the streets campaigning and demanding change. But, uh, you know, the challenge is, of course, to get the information in front of people so they, they know what the, the true state of affairs is. Um, you know, we've got so used to so many of those, um, so much of that being the way things are rather than um, taking action against it. Absolutely. Um, so on that note, We're in an election year. There's a lot for uh, people to think about. I think when we met 12 months ago, we'd just heard from Brittany Higgins and we were all um, pretty traumatised by having heard about that. And, you know, the Christian Porter allegations were coming to the fore. We had March for Justice coming up. Um, So it was a pretty difficult time for for many of us. Um, You know, our parliament, we would have thought, should be the safest workplace in the land and it was very much turning into uh, one of the least safe and, and you know, thanks to the bravery of, of Brittany and others for bringing that forward. And what's happened since then? We've heard, learned a lot more about sexual harassment in the workplace. There's been even more high-profile cases. Um, most recently, uh, we've seen justice for some of the victims of Dyson Hayden, um, but that was, I found, pretty confronting. Uh, again, another workplace that you would expect to be one of the most safe in the country, the High Court of Australia. Uh, and and clearly not so. 
the mining industry really facing up to uh, the culture in their industries uh, and a lot of um, issues emerging there. Um, perhaps a disappointing response. In fact, I'd say a disappointing response from the federal government to the Respect at Work report. Uh, we've had the apology to Brittany Higgins um, and, of course, we've had the impact of COVID, continued impact of COVID on women. So 12 months on, what are your thoughts on, on where we're at and how is the federal government and specifically Scott Morrison doing? Ooh, uh, <laughs> um, I'm happy to go first on this one. Um, they're not doing well uh, across the board. So I think, um, you know, we talk about doing policy work and making sure we do gender analysis and all the, the important things. But what's been really clear with this federal government is They've taken it one step further. We've seen failure to implement the respect at work recommendations. So just completely ignoring the the huge, you know, and, and really important bit of um, research and recommendations from the Australian Human Rights Commission. Just not ignore it. Um, we're still seeing them push ahead with plans for tax cuts for the blokes. So those tax cuts are completely gendered and will impact women far um, more negatively than men. And they know that. And they're still going ahead with it. So that that always strikes me as unbelievable. And then what we've seen in the last few weeks as well is the National Plan on Violence Against Women and Children, mm. which, um, to be honest, is stunning in its lack of um, uh, response to workplaces. Workplaces aren't mentioned in it, which, yeah. you know, is extraordinary when you put those things together of um, the experience of Parliament House and working there, the experience of working at the High Court, the experiences of women working in retail and sexual harassment, and we've ended up with a national plan of violence and uh, to address violence against women and children, and it doesn't talk about work, and that's extraordinary. So having a gender analysis on policy um, is really important, but you've actually got to live it too. You've actually got to respect it and, and try and change it, and this government just fails on every every opportunity they get to address gender. They go the complete other way. It's extraordinary to watch. Yeah, I've found it um, uh, uh, incomprehensible that you can talk about women's safety without talking about women's economic security. The yeah. two are inextricably linked. All yeah. the research shows that. And, uh, and, that, and that's part of the problem with not addressing uh, sexual workplace harassment. And, you know, the, the stats are off the charts, one in four women in the last year, five years, I think it is, is it has experienced some sort of um, sexual harassment at work. And without the stability of permanency or regular shifts and being caught up in, as a casual or, in general, insecure work, um, women either don't report it for fear of losing work or they leave the situation and then the perpetrator continues their behaviour on the next person that comes along. And so not having reporting mechanisms covered by industrial relations laws federally for so many workplaces means that women remain unprotected um, against these laws. And we're obviously looking to make some changes here in Victoria and we've had fantastic workforce with a great co-chair in uh, Workforce uh, Task Force, co-chair by Liberty Sanger herself. Um, but look, you know, there is something that needs to happen on a federal level. And I don't even think Scott Morrison can bring himself to have this conversation. He clearly, you know, likes to throw his uh, wife under the bus every time, you know, there's mm. something serious that happens um, with women. But I'm going to say in the last 12 
months. I've found it, you know, not only the trauma of COVID and all the extra responsibilities that has put on women by, you know, having to do education in the home and work from home and every other pressure that comes on you um, because of that, Um, but the trauma of when you do connect with women and for the first time they're telling their story friends, family, broader, you know, because I feel comfortable because Brittany Higgins has broken the mould of being able to be out there and talking about it and Grace Tame as well, that women feel like they can tell their story about sexual harassment or sexual abuse for the first time kind of in a safe environment. But that's not necessarily reporting it in the workplace. They're just telling friends. And I, you know, I reckon I've come across probably about seven seven to eight people in my life that have disclosed incidences that happened to them that I never knew about, including my own mum in the uh, Mm. early 90s, you know, like just there was a predator at work and everyone knew in her workplace that no woman could be in the kitchen alone with this guy. And yet no one did anything about it, even when they did report. Yeah, yep. and I mean that goes right to the heart of um, of Kate Jenkins' Respect at Work report, uh, where she really highlighted uh, the need for a a strong prevention approach. One of the recommendations went to a, a positive duty in uh, the Sexual Harassment Act on employers to pr- provide the safe workplace, and likewise that OHS be used as a tool in order to uh, prevent workplace sexual harassment. Um, you know, having undertaken that task force for the Victorian government, who in fact was completely aligned with that and really um, working hard to sponsor a conversation between employers, unions and um, community about how we would enliven that duty for uh, OHS laws. But Victoria is leading the way. The, the federal government is absent on that and didn't uh, proceed with that recommendation. Um, and it just seems that every time every time they're asked to step up and lead, every time Scott Morrison is asked to step up and lead or have a, a leadership response to one of the issues around gender, he's not there. Mm. He just, I don't know whether he doesn't know what to do, whether he's worried about how it's going to play out with male voters, whether he's just, you know, doesn't think it's important. But you know, this is the Prime Minister of Australia. And if we can't yeah, rely on the Prime right. Minister of you Australia... You can get it on merit. <laughs> um, I, think it's just, <laughs> I think what it shows is it, when you see his response to things, it's not just a lack of interest about women's um, economic security or violence against women. or It's actually, to me, it comes across as an active disdain for women. Like he sort of goes so far the other way to be either patronising, condescending... Um, or, and just completely dismissive. So it, it makes me madder that it's not just the more traditional, oh, I'm not really across this topic, to no, I'm actively against it and I'll do everything in my power to make sure we don't see any improvement in important things like the Respect at Work recommendations or being forced to do the apology um, to Britney Spears because of political. You know, you just think that stuff's, you just don't get it. And um, that means you're not fit for office because you don't represent half of the people in this country. So it, you just can't be sustained that he is the leader of, it just can't be, it's not up to the job. It just seems to me to be so out of step too with where the rest of the community is at. Mm. I mean, I've been really um, heartened by the work I've, I've done um, that, as I said, has involved employer groups and 
um, uh, and unions and community, everyone's looking for a way to get change. People are not looking to um, try and stop it or are questioning whether it's an issue. Everyone accepts there's an issue and it's, you know, achieving the, the change that's needed is is hard work, but there is a path through it. But um, you just, when you're dealing with the, with Scott Morrison and the federal government, it just feels like it's a complete backward step and, and out of step. I saw an interesting um, piece of research recently that suggested that one of the uh, emerging um, voter groups that's shifting their voter patterns or voting patterns are professional women. Um, and they are moving away from the coalition. And one of the theories was that it's just so out of step with their expectations, uh, both driven by their own workplaces that quite normally have diversity and inclusion plans and, and have um, clear um, and are well understood policies around promotion and um, progression. They have an expectation of what a workforce might look like. And they hear this stuff that's coming out of the federal parliament and it's just so anathema to them and they're not speaking about the stuff that resonates with them. Um, there's been other polls that have been taken that um, I think an essential poll that, that showed that uh, Morrison was uh, behind uh, Anthony Albanese on understanding the issues facing women. Uh, Morrison was at 34%, um, Albanese at 46%. Um, and we are increasingly seeing that women are voting for the Labor Party um, in preference to the Liberal Party. At the last election, we see 37% women voting Labor, uh, whereas 34% of, of Labor's vote came from men, compared with 35% uh, women for the Liberal Party and, uh, and for women and 45% male vote uh, for the Liberal Party. Um, so I half wonder whether Scott Morrison, in fact, has had an eye on his male voter base and um, has been thinking about them. We know he's a very political animal. What are your thoughts uh, to both of you about how women will rate Scott Morrison in this upcoming election? What, what will their issues be um, that will matter to them? And um, do you think that everything that we've seen over the last 12 months that's had an impact on women is going to resonate at the ballot box? Obviously, you can't just generalise for every single woman, but I think that there are a lot of women out there that are angry about his inaction around um, workplace sexual harassment, full stop, and everyone, you know, my friends in the corporate sector, they're, they're horrified by his lack of action and, and behaviour. Like, they just, as you pointed out, Liberty, they don't have that in their workplace and, and in the main. I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but mm. there are procedures in place and he just doesn't get it. He doesn't get it at all. And I think then that makes women question his capacity and ability to get anything and clearly he doesn't get aged care and clearly he doesn't get childcare and clearly he doesn't get women in the workforce in the main and I think that will have an, an impact and an influence on many women's votes and, um, you know, I, I haven't heard a lot of women in my community championing Scott Morrison. If anything, I've seen them be political for the first time ever in being critical of him on social media. So that's mm -hmm. an observation from my end. Julia, what are you picking up? Um, well, I think the lack of action and had so many opportunities to demonstrate that there could be a uh, move forward. And, he, and again, as I said earlier, he's taken every one of them back the other way. 
Um, I think too, economic security for women and, and the way COVID's impacted women um, and their outcomes, you see it when you talk to members about housing, which is just, you know, gone bananas with a 25% increase in housing of not just housing to purchase, but that will, you know, lead on to higher rents and the impact that's yeah. going to have. People are really struggling financially to make ends meet. And um, I think women are more mindful of, how COVID has played out for them in terms of their security at work. So they'd be more likely to lose their job, more likely to have hours cut. Um, you do have a much stronger conversation, particularly online in um, lots of places around, well, hang on, nurses, aged care workers, childcare workers, retail workers, feminised industries, and they're all paid a lot less. Yeah. What is that? And people are a bit over that. There's no justification. In fact, COVID's shown us that there's absolutely no justification totally. with historical undervaluation of women's work. And that's kind of shifted from like three years ago. People are actually like, hang on, women are just paid too low. Like, why aren't we getting the same amount of pay? Yeah. Um, and for really hard work. Um, you can go and dig in a mine. It's just as hard as caring for someone in aged care or a two-year-old in childcare or putting up with an irate customer in retail. Like they, we just need to value work differently. And it's also shown people, I think, that we don't value care of any kind. So even in the paid care areas like um, aged care and health and social and community services, and we don't value that care because we don't pay properly and we don't value yeah. Um, women's caring responsibilities that fall to women predominantly, we're not also um, addressing that. So when you look at the support packages that were given, they failed to recognise that women were taking on all these extra things for the economy to help the economy. Um, so I think there is a different level of anger and I think women will vote more, uh, I'm hoping, more in their own interests this time around about yeah. what's actually going to make a difference for them because it's been a really tough couple of years for, you know, a lot of women. Oh, <laughs> and totally. they're angry. Yeah, they're angry. Totally. And, you know, you've just reminded me all over again about how angry I was during um, COVID with the COVID response. You know, not having any women around that cabinet table, having very few, I should say, women around that cabinet table to provide um, a diversity of thought mm. into what decisions were being made including who got support and who didn't. I mean, a lot of the um, industries, I'm thinking of early childhood carers, uh, educators, um, missed out on support and yet they were required to be at work and they were essential. And, you know, what was the justification for that? And as we all know, um, money being invested in infrastructure, great, but um, where was the evidence base that this was an industry that was suffering during the pandemic? Yeah. It wasn't an economic uh, um, impact, it was a health impact to the economy and the industries that were suffering were the ones that were um, largely dominated by women, hospitality, the arts. Um, higher education, like you, the decimation of higher education and then they wanted to have a skills discussion. Well, you've just decimated <laughs> R&D, um, yeah. you know, all the development that you need to as a country um, be um, be well across and be ready for as we launch into a tighter labour market and other things going on geopolitically. And they decimated it and it was a completely political decision. It had nothing to do with, you know, what the budget could afford or how it needed to be done. And the same when I look at the impact of the arts, and I don't know that, you know, again, we need to really talk about the impact of how um, I think the impact of no support whatsoever for the arts 
yeah. me is astounding as well and will have long-term consequences for our society. And I don't always think that one gets the same airplay as some of the others, but it's so important, so important. Oh, particularly our- as yeah. we rebuild, as we all come out of it, we need mm. and we want um, festivals and points of connection and we do that through our music and our yeah. art and our theatre. But what have we been doing to support our artists during this period so they can help us with all coming back together as a community? Mm-hmm. Nothing. Yeah, yeah. No, well, nothing on a federal level. I was going to say, I, I made the assumption during COVID that the biggest area of job losses in my own electorate was in the airlines and tourism industry because my electorate's very close to the airport and I know one in five workers, work, uh, residents have work around the airport or that, that sector. But in fact, when I got the statistics and the breakdown, it was actually women in higher education Mm. um, and TAFE, uh, 900 jobs lost in that sector of women just in one state electorate. Um, And actually um, many of the the people that had jobs connected to the airport were able to take leave and other arrangements or able to gain their employment back. Not saying that they didn't suffer, but um, I, I was really surprised to see the volume of women that had lost their jobs due to kind of higher ed and and um, the tape sector really suffering during COVID as well. Such a good point um, because, you know, my understanding is that, that uh, women tend to be in the insecure work in higher education as well um, and in, you know, guess what, the less senior positions and so, you know, they were in the most vulnerable employment when cuts came through higher education. And what's the plan to restore that? It was um, one of Australia's largest export industries, certainly Victoria's largest export industry. Um, and so, you know, it's not sensible to just abandon it. So what's the plan to restore it, um, uh, let alone um, making sure that we're educating today's and tomorrow's uh, Australians so that they can have and, and take the country through a prosperous future. Liberty, before we change um, subjects, just on the pandemic and the federal government response, I just don't think there has been an acknowledgement of women carrying the burden during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And I don't just mean women in the workplace or women out of the workplace place and working from home I also mean all of the care responsibilities you know I I know there were a lot of families where you know there were couples balancing it but there were a lot more families where it was just the women balancing both the kids at home or elderly parent care um, or broader support for family networks when when those families got COVID Um, it would always be the women that were cooking more on it and it wasn't until I went to the dentist um, during COVID and emergency situation because I had developed a really bad grinding of my teeth. Yes. And my dentist said to me, oh, my God, I have so many women who um, have this problem and we can't handle the volume and the referrals for all these women that are cracking their own teeth by grinding their teeth. And it seemed to be a particular age group of between kind of uh, 30 and 60 that were were doing this. And it was phenomenally high. And I'm, I'm sure there's plenty of other health side effects that women um, experience due to the added pressure. But that was just a little antidote about, you know, women grinding their teeth <laughs> just to yeah. get through. That's so interesting. Are you wearing a mouth guard now, Nat? Yeah, I am. Yeah. <laughs> Not right now, but yes, at night, yes. <laughs> yeah, no, I heard even in my social circle just, I, you know, when COVID hit and the homeschooling happened, 
just seeing how many um, couples defaulted to what you'd call a traditional. Yeah, view, totally. Yeah, and I, it surprised me um, that, oh, no, no, well, um, the female partner earns less, so therefore she should do the child um, minding, child uh, homeschooling because husband's job's really important. And I was yeah. like, wow. And how many workplaces didn't stand up for that and say, well, no, you all need to be doing it. They didn't push it from their end because it was in their interest not to. Um, but it was really interesting to watch what you thought were probably more um, progressive kind of distributions of labour and um, completely changed with COVID and it went straight to a default of very traditional, along very traditional. agree. I saw yeah. the same thing, Julia. Yeah, it's weird, wasn't it? Well, it's a really important uh, lesson for us all to learn, though, that, you know, we've still got so far to go and, you know, we've all talked previously about where attitudes are shaped and, and while we uh, all do a lot to try and influence behaviours and structures in workplaces, there's no doubt that um, attitudes are shaped in the home. And, you know, our kids, other people's kids are seeing, you know, women doing traditional uh, domestic duties and, we, and the men perhaps not doing as much or talking about doing a lot and not doing as much. Um, so, you know, there's a, there's a big piece there for us to be really conscious of what is happening in the home and, and how we can try and make those changes as we role model to the next generation. Um, good call out, Ned. Uh, Nat, <laughs> Ned. <laughs> Ned being my son, uh, <laughs> Nat being the other person on the panel here. <laughs> um, so let's uh, let's talk about the Andrews government because it's also a state election year. Uh, we've had a bit of a chat about some of the actions that the Andrews government has taken, uh, both through the pandemic and and also through the course of the the last period of government. Um, Nat. What can you tell us about the priority that the Andrews government has placed on on gender equality and ensuring that there is real action taken on the ground to achieve gender equality? Well, there are the achievements um, over the last twelve months that are, you know, predominantly in the in the women's portfolio. But I'd say there's been achievements in every single portfolio that benefit women. And I know that's a big, broad statement to make, but for example, I'm Minister for Victim Support and we've recently introduced a change into the parliament when a woman has experienced sexual um, violence or been the victim of family violence, um, if the crime uh, is deemed a serious crime or the, uh, the after effects, they can actually pursue compensation through um, court system. But the way the law was drafted, uh, the, basically the perpetrator would be notified of the court hearing and the perpetrator in most cases, would turn up to yeah. intimidate uh, the victim. So we've made a small change by introducing um, that the perpetrators will no longer be uh, informed of those cases um, so that the women can come and put their uh, case directly to a judge. And I think that's really important because there's been so many women that haven't claimed that in the past um, and again, that's a small change in one portfolio. Yeah. And I think that's the beauty of having, you know, 50-50 men and women around a cabinet table is you've got all these different perspectives of, of different types of women looking at different portfolio changes where they can make decisions that yeah. affect women's everyday life. And I don't know how you measure that other than a massive list of things. But in, in the kind of um, general realm, it's really been about 
securing women's economic security um, through uh, even promoting permanent um, work work opportunities for our public service, for our teaching staff, for our admin support staff to move away from contractors. I've done that in the youth justice sector where there was a lot of women um, who were working on a casual basis. We've, we've um, managed to absolutely um, change that into permanent uh, positions. And um, we've also had the Gender Equity Act pass where we've got about 300 public sector organisations who are now measuring gender equality mm. in their workplaces and taking action um, to reduce the pay gap in those workplaces. And I think that sets a, a really big standard for all workplaces in Victoria. We know as the single biggest employer in the state that if we're not setting the benchmark on this stuff, the private sector will not follow. Yeah. Um, and uh, so we're getting on with that and also obviously improving our reporting and responses to both workplace bullying and sexual harassment, which has been a challenge because across the public um, service, we had a lot of different procedures and policies that were not um, necessarily fit for purpose. And we have people moving between departments all the time. We have people making career changes in the care sector. You need some uniformity around um, knowing people knowing what their rights are and how to make complaints um, and how to get support. And it's certainly one of the major things that I hear out of young um, workers, young women workers, that um, they don't know how to how to stand up for themselves in the workplace, so they'd rather walk away from the job and try something else rather than to try and change the situation, which that means we're, we're failing if we're not providing them with those supports to um, be able to stay in employment and, and do that. I think um, certainly encouraging the take-up of paid parental leave for all public servants, yeah. not just for the female public servants. This has yep. been a big kind of bugbear for me personally. I think one of the biggest challenges in um, workplace equality is um, making sure that males do the take take a parenting responsibility, whether that's with a newborn or whether that's with a teenager. Yeah. It's making sure that... Uh, it doesn't always fall to to just the mother, but that, that there's shared responsibility. And I've got to say, we've had some really fantastic leaders in the public sector, um, some um, secretaries of our departments who have really shown some leadership in that space, some men. And I think, you know, brings me back to the whole question of respect and our government out of the Royal Commission um, into family violence, the issue of respect and setting up Respect Victoria, running the ads on TV about um, calling it out if you see disrespect um, and and also um, really making sure that the um, Respectful Relationships Program was rolled out and continues to be rolled out in our schools. And um, I think, you know, I've been to some really phenomenal online and in-person forums across uh, quite a few schools in my electorate where parents have engaged, and I think that is absolutely the key. Yeah. You can't just deliver respectful relationships in school and not have the family engaged because quite often, you know, if it's not backed up in the home, it's not going to be reflected in the kid's life as they go on. Yeah. I think, as, gosh, you know, I get windburn as I listen to you talking about all the things that the Andrews government have done, but it's so um, terrific. And for me, what it really um, boils down to is that the Andrews government, Daniel Andrews, accepts that 
there is gender inequality and it requires a structural solution. Structured discrimination needs a structural solution. And so what are all the different structures we can set up to eliminate gender inequality? And mm -hmm. as you go through all of those, there's a clear purpose, there's a strategy, and there's resources behind it. And it, as you were saying, it becomes a part of everyday business so that it becomes a part of every single policy that you look at. And it's business as usual. It's nothing unusual to consider um, the gendered impact and, and I'm sure uh, increasingly the intersectional impact of every piece of policy. Yeah. And can I just say one of the other key areas which I kind of skipped over is our commitment to women in non-traditional um, sectors. You know, we've got segregation of wages and making sure that we've got opportunities for women to get into construction and our level crossing removals has um, had targets of having women apprentices and that has been fantastic um, opportunity and women managers um, on site. And uh, I think our commitment through both TAFE and skills to um, look at those uh, industries that women aren't well represented and making sure there's opportunities for them to be going into those industries. And I think uh, mainly around the IT sector which is just experiencing huge growth and um, we've, we've been doing a lot of investment um, in that sector to make sure we're encouraging women um, to, to move into that those roles as well. Yeah. And on that, I in my local area, I had a few um, level crossing, so it was a couple of years of works around our area, but I tell you, I mentioned, I remember um, saying it to one of um, the members of the parliament in, in Victoria, but it was so visible that um, you would see women all across that work of the level crossing. They were everywhere. And that was really different because it hadn't been like that. Even the traffic controllers and um, site managers, you could visibly see it in our area. Um, mm -hmm. There was there was actually women on site regularly and it was the norm. So it was, it was great to see. Um, I just wanted to touch on one of the other points Nat made, which is mm -hmm. the sequence of things around secure work it's just fundamental. You can have the best policy in the world on sexual harassment, but if you don't have secure work, um, you're not going to make significant change. So I think it's just fantastic that we move away from this contractor model and we've got some permanency for people because in some of the research that we've done on working care in the retail industry, that has come through as just so important. Secure work, but it has to be good work as well, so decent jobs and um, often people talk about insecure work just being casual, but what we found from our research is the insecure work is part-timers rostered on really low hours, a common feature in retail, also common in aged care and common in um, some other feminised sectors, but how important it is for meaningful, uh, stable hours of work and it can just change your whole, um, one, your economic security because you yeah. can stay in your job and if you're sexually harassed, you've got, you've got some, um, you don't operate with the same level of fear about raising it because you have a stable job. It's just so important, this um, concept of secure work. We just have to get that right because it is, to me, it's the foundation for women, really. We've got yeah. to know that and from that flows a whole lot of things, economic security, retirement security, um, ability to stand up and and say this is an appropriate behaviour, which we have to do. We have to do. So I really applaud the the move to secure work and recognising that as a foundation. Yeah. I, well, I was going to ask you both what um, issues you think will be relevant for women at the uh, at the state election. Maybe I will ask you that and then we're going to 
pivot to talk to your uh, your, your report, Julia. But um, just to close that conversation off about the the issues that will be relevant in the state election, uh, what do you think women are going to rate highly at the ballot box? I think women's economic recovery from COVID will be a big one, um, and and women's um, opportunity to get gainful employment post you know as we further unlock. Um, will be a big one. But also, I, I think, you know, everyone's eyes are now on aged care, um, nursing. Our care sector has never been more important than during this COVID period. And I think that will be um, a big Achilles heel for the federal um, government and could be, you know, an issue for us uh, as a state government, depending how people, um, you know, fared through the experience of COVID. And, um, whether they felt that they were supported and protected. Yeah. And Julia, what do you think will be important? Um, I think it touches on a point made earlier, is this recognition of what's actually just happened over the last couple of years. And I'm not sure women feel that that's completely recognised or um, acknowledged. And I think people are looking, women might be looking for that acknowledgement and then what are we going to do about it? Um, and I think the other issue for me is how we're going to address the burnout of women and the mental health impacts for women and and children. Um, so I think it's got to be a government that's talking about all the things that will make a difference in the day-to-day lives and, as I said, the economic pressure, housing is another really big yep. one. Um, our members are really struggling with housing and, and that has, again, other consequences for people. You're seeing a lot more people with second jobs. We've created this system um, which you know, because of the protections we have in our federal industrial system, but we're creating casual jobs. We're not creating full-time jobs in this recovery and we're not creating stable jobs. And so people are now just, instead of one job, they've now got three and it's not an answer. That's So we just need yeah. to be talking about those things because it does impact women um, differently and more so than it does men at the moment. So I think there's a few things, but a bit of recognition about how crap the last couple of years has been and and, um, that it's not just going to tick a box and say, we see you, it's actually, and we're going to do this for you because this is not working. And so I think Victorian government has a lot more on um, on that agenda than the federal one. The federal one's missing in action. Yeah. I think the other thing to recognise too, and I don't know if this is more of a state or a federal issue, but it touches on Julia's um, points, and that is there's been a phenomenal rate of separation of relationships during COVID um, Mm. that, you know, no doubt are going to end up in divorce, and some of that has been very nasty. And, you know, I don't know if (laughs) it just seems like a lot of people in different workplaces that I've come across have um, experienced spending, you know, uh, testing their relationships and that the relationships not going through the the test of COVID, and I think that you know means that we're going to have a whole lot of um, single mums that you know even more than ever before who are are struggling and looking for that support wherever they can get it, and whether that means better opportunities at work or better services locally, um, I think that will unfold. Yeah, great. It's a really really good call out. Um, it's a good segue, actually, into talking about uh, childcare. And, uh, Julia, uh, you and the SDA have, uh, have sponsored a terrific report uh, around work and care. Um, do you want to tell us a bit about what you found and uh, what you think some of the solutions are? Sure. Well, it was um, a report into the retail industry. It's the first of its kind, and it looks at how people uh, working in our sector manage their work 
um, lives and then they're balanced with their care responsibilities. And it's been really interesting. It's a very dense report. It's got um, a lot of information in it, but we asked a range of questions around how hours of work are structured, how rosters are structured and therefore how that impacts your care choices. And what we found is um, a lot of people in retail, so 50% of parents in retail are relying on informal care only to manage their childcare. So when we talk about childcare policies for um, a lot of retail workers, and it's a very big industry, it employs 10% of all working Australians, that half of them don't even access the formal childcare sector. So that has uh, impacts not only on educational um, outcomes and early childhood educational outcomes, but it's also an issue around how they then have to construct their lives to be able to um, rely on informal care. So whether they're relying on neighbours or babysitters or their parents to mind their kids or their kids to mind their younger kids, which is the other one. Um, And so that's been really interesting because we just didn't have a sense about how our members are using the formal childcare system. And it's clear that they're not because it doesn't work for them for a few factors. Non-standard hours is another issue. Yeah. And the biggest one is that their rosters change week in, week out. So 10% of working parents in retail have no permanent day of the week. So which I just don't understand. You can't book your kid in for childcare because they require permanent bookings Monday and Wednesday and Tuesday or whatever it is. But for retail workers, 10% of parents don't have a regular workday. And then two in five never work the same roster each week. So you cannot then access some of those systems a lot of other women would take for granted, which is the childcare um, system. It's just not available to half of the working population and parents in retail. So that was pretty shocking, that finding. The other one that stood out for me is one in seven women took no form of parental leave of any kind with their last birth. So no government funded 18 weeks, no uh, employer funded parental leave and no unpaid parental leave. Nothing. Really? Which is really high. And when we asked the researchers to go and interrogate that a bit, because we thought maybe it was about the period of time of you know, their eligibility, yeah. it wasn't. The people responding to that had all been with their employer for more than two years. So something's going wrong there. Um, and it's a significant one because it meant that I think 10% of women or maybe 14% of women are back to work within the first five weeks of birth. Oh, goodness. So, and the system was designed, particularly yeah. the government parental leave system, was designed really to target women um, in, in lower-paid sectors like retail. So yeah. um, I think one of the sort of views we've kind of come to is maybe the impact that the um, government's, what do you call it? What was the... Um, the paid parental leave scheme? No, the, the our members aren't accessing government-funded payments because they're worried about a robo-debt, robo-debt letters and that they're going to be penalised five years down the track. Right. So we have a feeling they're not deliberately, they're deliberately staying out of government payments because they're very concerned about the impact um, because the federal government has been so um, appalling in the way it's treated people on um, government payments. So that's also really concerning because these people need to um, be able to have paid support while they're off having babies. And then a lot of men aren't able to access uh, parental leave at all because of the culture in the workplace is still really poor, fails Mm. to recognise that men want to provide care. 
the men in our survey want and partners want to provide care. So um, that was interesting to unpack that as well because I think some people still say men don't want to do that. We've got a lot of men that do. Um, so we need to change the workplace culture. Mm-hmm. And then I think the other thing is how much part-time, which is supposed to be a permanent model of work, is not that for those working in retail. It's actually a form of casual without the casual loading. And that has been a real erosion over the last, um, say, 10 years, I think. And what we see is part-time work on these low base hours and then you might get offered additional shifts and that makes up your wage, but you don't get offered that shift till the night before. So how do you find care? Um, Or if you've got an appointment booked to take your mum to the heart specialist that you've had booked in for six months, um, well, now work's rung and said they need you tomorrow, that's when your appointment is with your mum, can't go. And then you turn down the shift. And the other part of this research is if you turn down the shift, you are then forever punished. So you are in this really vicious cycle. Workers just don't get genuine choice around their ability to provide care. So the findings are really shocking um, on lots of levels. And I think the last part that really has resonated as well is how many kids are impacted by fostering choices and the poor management practices of employers. And kids are missing out on one access to early learning and education. Um, We asked a question around four-year-old kinder and 95% of Australian kids attend four-year-old kinder, but for retail workers, it was only 72%, which is a huge gap. And they're not attending kinder because their rosters are never the same and they can't get their kids there. So it's just appalling. Yeah, it is appalling. And then the other part too is retail workers are paying for care they don't use. So there's a real yeah. efficiency question about um, particularly after-school care. So a lot of parents commented on after-school care, having to pay for that, but you actually only book in for it so you can get access to holiday care. You don't actually need before and after school care because it doesn't fit anyway with a retail roster. So, you know, you're paying for care you don't use. These are the lowest income earners, you know, one of the lowest. So it's not working for them. The system doesn't work for them. Um, Work is not working for them. And yet they also have, on average, double the care responsibilities um, when you compare it to the national average. So retail workers are doing an exceptional amount of unpaid care for others. So we just need to. And I yep. think from memory there were quite a few single parents in the cohort. Yeah. Who weren't Double there, the but... national average again. Retail's yep. sort of an industry that women go into to sort of top up hours and, and things like that. So, yeah, there's 25% of the workforce in retail single parents compared to 14% of the national average. So, again, if you're structuring rosters and work, you need to be mindful that people you're hiring are also in situations of being single parents and the challenges that single parents faced around rostering was just horrific. No leeway given to them at all. No, there's just so much to digest from that uh, report and I really commend you and the SDA for undertaking it and and bringing all of this to light. Um, You know, one of many things that the Andrews government has done that I'm so um, incredibly proud of is the introduction of free three- and four-year-old kinder yeah, very much aligned to understanding that those early years are so critical to the formation of our, our little people's minds and brains. And the idea that a whole group of workers is unable to access it because their employment rostering arrangements prohibit any meaningful participation and that their kids are disadvantaged from the very get-go just makes my blood boil. Yeah, and it's also, I think, what the other part we found is it's participation for kids just in life, which is how we keep describing it, because 
parents can't get their kids to swimming lessons, sport. Um, they never get to see their kid who might be a really good soccer player and they never get to go to the games because they're rostered. You know, one of our delegates was um, telling me she's rostered 4 p.m. till midnight, Monday through Thursday, and then every second weekend. So she puts her kids to bed three nights a week, uh, three nights a fortnight, and she misses every game and her son's a really talented, I think he was soccer player. Um, she misses all of that, has for... I think the last 12 years, um, she works the exact opposite shift to her husband um, because that's the only way they manage care. Yeah. And so they don't have family time. They don't get any of that because they just, he comes in the door, she goes out the door because that's the only way they can manage their life. So the impact on children not having family time, I think the point that made about family breakups as well, like this has got to be a factor in family violence. It's got to be a factor in relationship breakdown. Um, and, you know, it's a huge cost uh, and the cost is all on workers and employers need to just be radically changing the way they um, manage people's or allow people to manage their work and care. Um, it's highly discriminatory. I'm not sure how they can keep pretending it isn't, but um, they really are punishing workers for having care responsibilities. Totally. Um, what's the solution? Um, I think fundamentally we need to recognise and value care and we don't. So I think we need to be honest with ourselves is it's not recognised and valued uh, enough and appropriately. And so I think we need to assign a fair economic value to it. We need to make sure people have um, the ability to care for others. You know, and that during your life cycle you may have, you know, looking after parents and kids we may not care at all. Um, so it's it's different. It's not always permanent care. It's some sometimes at various points in your life you need different arrangements, and I think we need to recognise that. Um, so I think we need a right for people to care. But I think for our members, security, predictability, stable rosters is just fundamental, and that's got to change on the ground for many, many workers so that they can plan their lives, plan care, plan time with their kids, um, and just have a better uh, sense because it's just overwhelming and it is also having really important or significant impacts on their mental health and financially too. So I think we've got to fix up some of those um, really important issues. And, and, and Liberty, we've committed as a government to gender-responsive budgeting, which is um, going to be an overlay of this current budget that's coming out in May, which looks at what are the benefits of state government spending to women, and it's not just the women's only programs, it's yeah. all of the spend and how that affects, you know, whether it be on, you know, infrastructure projects that produce jobs for women, or is it about the, you know, um, structural changes that we need to make that make life easier? And I, I think about the new developments we've got going on with schools where we have a childcare, a kinder, a school and a high school within the same precinct for a drop-off hmm. save so many parents' time. And even our investment in car parks at, at train stations, the big winners out of that are women because you can't necessarily do a school drop-off on a bus on the way to a, um, you know, childcare drop-off and then get to the station, then get on a train, then get to work. It's almost impossible you need the car. So by being able to uh, park at a station, it's really important yeah. for so many women. And I know the car park um, out my way, which is a big hot topic at the moment, um, when when everyone's back in the office, that car park's full. But you see all the baby seats in the back of the yeah. cars as yeah. well. Um, so, you know, that's the other part of 
uh, government, good governance responding to the needs of women. Yeah, yeah. And um, and it's well, it's also timely to talk about childcare and the provision of childcare generally. Um, you know, it's 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 another another um, sector that just does such an amazing job for our early childhood educators. Um, yet again, a, a predominantly female workforce, uh, paid less than uh, other workforces. Within it, a gender pay gap. We see um, men, uh, male managers, and and then particularly higher up the chain, you see CEOs of the, the owners of many of those um, big multinationals that own childcare being paid big bucks. Um, there's a lot to be done around improving childcare as well, which I guess is the flip side, Julia, to what you've um, uh, found with respect to rostering. What, what would it take? What's it going to take to fix childcare in this country? Why isn't it universal and free? free. Yeah, and accessible. Um, yeah, and people, and I think, you know, when we've thought a lot about uh, the childcare system that we have at the moment and free and accessible are vital, particularly for our members. Um, but the other thing is accessible, I don't know any parent who wants to drop their kid off at 4am to start the 5am shift at Coles. Mm. That's not the solution. No. The solution, and I, you know, and we wouldn't want to extend for um, childcare workers to have to work across 24-7. That is not the answer. The answer is employers respecting and recognising that people have care responsibilities at certain times. Yes. They're unavailable, right? That's yeah. the answer. So, but in, within that, you need free childcare. It's it's hugely important. Um, we're really behind, I think, compared to so many countries on that level. Yeah. Um, again, it's about investing in our future. So a government that doesn't talk about free childcare, you think, well, you're not investing in the future. You're just not. And so that needs to be recognised. But it, for us, it can't come without in recognition that employers need to change the way they are behaving um, as well to make sure that is an outcome and people can access these, you know, proper childcare for their children. It's really important. But so we're looking at care rosters, for example, and if you've got care responsibilities, then then you have a care roster or, or something like that. But just trying to work through the options for people so they can access and, and their kids don't miss out. And take away the stigma that comes when you have to talk about your care responsibilities at work. Yep. Uh, just to fire up the women that are listening for International Women's Day, our <laughs> World Economic Forum um, Global Gender Gap Report shows that Australia has dropped to number 50 in the report from yep. 15. So we were number 15 in 2006. In 2021, we're number 50. Yes, sure. So we've seen massive drop. I mean, we're behind Zimbabwe and the Philippines. And I don't think many Australians would understand or know that. No. And I think, you know, that the fact that um, childcare, aged care, all of the care sector has not kept pace yep. Um, yep. In, in real wages increases yep. is a big um, component of that. And our yep. parental leave is well behind. Yep. And it's interesting, I often um, start talks with that stat because it is just how quickly Australia has deteriorated on the gender equality front and you know when you compare to new zealand who's still number four i think which always gets people razzed up with australia versus new zealand yes. um but it, it's shocking and again the federal government have been in power now for what nine years it's all on their watch what are they doing um exactly. we're number one for educational attainment still which is great but on every other marker we are heading back and we're not just heading back we're racing back um 
it's full speed ahead. And again, this is why when you consider the responses of the federal government, when they've had the opportunity to step up, they haven't in any way. Yeah. And when we talk about gender responsive budgeting, one of the things I'm really looking forward to is a proper and dispassionate analysis coming forward about what the opportunity cost of not investing mm. in many of these sectors is. I mean, not investing properly in childcare not only means that we're underpaying all of those workers that are spending and creating our next generation, spending their time and creating our next generation of, of humans. Um, and not being paid at the appropriate rates. But likewise, we are not enabling the participation of so many women who in turn would boost economic productivity. Yeah. So bonkers. On, yeah. Like, you, don't, you don't need to be someone that believes in equality to, uh, to see the rationale of the case. Do I mean, I math. think you should. Just yeah. do the maths, exactly. Yep. Exactly. Just do the maths. And remove the barriers, I say, yeah, <laughs> to totally. women participating. Yeah. Totally. Um, we are, we are all mothers of boys, uh, yes. which I think puts us in a really interesting position to talk about what we all need to do to raise the next generation of boys to live in a gender equal world. I thought it would be interesting to get your thoughts on uh, what you teach your kids about gender equality and what your hopes are for the next generation of boys. Mm. <laughs> well, I had, this, I had a conversation the other day because... The opportunity presented when we, uh, my oldest was talking about Kanye or Yay or whatever his name, Yee, yeah. um, and the harassment of his former wife um, online and through, you know, social media. And my son raised it, you know, in something else. And I said, we need to unpack what what that is because, you know, he might, because the, the, they all love him, Kanye. And I just yeah. said, let's just explore who he is and what, what that behaviour actually is about. And he's, you know, got children and he's um, threatening to kill people and he's, you know, that that is the start of that escalating yeah, violence. Totally. And he was like, oh, I'm like, yeah, this is, we need to have this conversation. That's not okay. That's not okay. And and he got called out for it, which is very different to maybe three or four years ago, I probably think. So yeah. it's something to change and I felt really quite uh buoyed by the fact people were on him and saying no that's not all right you're harassing your, your ex-wife online and that's um, and you're being violent towards her and all those things so it was actually good that it was called out but it did give the opportunity to have that conversation about um what it what this what's going on with some of these people they um well the community still holds up you know like i also have conversations about um uh, Elon Musk and uh, Amazon and just saying these billionaires that kind of a, some of the younger generation really aspire to because they're innovative and they're this and that. And I'm like, no, they don't pay their labour force. Um, they, you know, we've got a pregnancy discrimination case going on with Amazon. They're, they're not they're not good. We need to talk about what a good man looks like and it's not tax yeah. evasion and it's not, um, you know, shocking labour rights. And let's just unpack what celebrity is because that's where they're in. Like it's all TikTok and they're in there. And let's talk about who some of these people are for you because it's we we owe it to them to have the conversation as much as they sit there going, oh. Anyway. Yeah, rolling their eyes. It does sink in, you know. <laughs> now my youngest is 18. I can see, you know, when, you know, that the, it is sinking in but it's been a long time of talking at him about equality and women's equality to yeah. get it to sink in. When, when he was about 14, we did a driving trip trip around New Zealand, just him and I, and I have four stepdaughters and they're all very uh, powerful, successful feminists in their own right. And uh, my son and I were driving and, and something come on the radio about um, the pay gap 
and he just said to me, oh, I just don't think it's real. And I nearly drove off the road at that point thinking, yeah. what, what have I created here? And so I, I literally pulled over and I looked at him. I said, why would you say that? And he said, well, look at you, mum. You're successful. The girls are successful as in his sisters. Like they all earn more than their boyfriends and, what you know, you, you're the breadwinner in our house and, you know, where is it? And, of course, it occurred to me he he doesn't, he wasn't in the workforce yet. Yeah. He hadn't actually seen it and he went to an all-boys school. Yep. So he didn't see that equality and I'm really, really happy he's now going to university with lots of girls and working part-time to look at ways, you know, that he can actually open his eyes. But, I mean, look, he's completely changed his views since then, I'm happy to say, and he kind of gets it now. <laughs> yeah, it just makes you realise you've got to call it out, though, don't you, and say, hang on, why yeah. do you think that? Because yeah. some of the things that they that you come through from school or um, from their friends and you think, oh, you know, and sometimes you think, do I pick the battle today and have this conversation or not? And most of the time I'm like, let's have this conversation because it, we have to because we've got to challenge some of the, the thinking. That's our job. Um, but it is really interesting. Some and you with Ned Lib, even though he's yeah. quite little? Yeah, he's seven and it's interesting. Well, when, when it has come up, he's just looked at me quizzically like, you mean there's a difference between boys and girls? Like I, I actually can't compute what you're talking about. Um, but I think, you know, where I try and um, send him messages right now is, um, you, know, you know, understanding, I mean, this will sound, well, this will sound sensible actually, understanding when his cousins say that they don't want to be tickled or they don't want to be chased, then you've got to stop. Yeah. Like, you know, there is a, what is this idea around consent and, and what people are allowing you to do and what, what's, what's a game and what's not a game? I also had to try and describe to him why I was so particularly angry about um, male genitalia being drawn on a uh, council call flute that I had outside my house of a um, young woman candidate uh, in the last council elections. And I thought, I don't know how to describe to my son why this has made me particularly angry when... The, none of the male councillors had had that type of gender defacing going on. In fact, hadn't been defaced at all. Um, but you just, you know, I just tried my best. I just said, you know, this is not okay. You can't go around drawing over people's faces when they are running for parliament. It's not something that's acceptable. And this one was a particularly nasty attack on a woman. Mm -hmm. So you just try and explain it. And, but you feel so terrible on one level because they're so innocent as you're explaining it. But as you say, Julia, you've got to take those moments and explain that this is not okay. And for another podcast, can I just raise that the, the um, council elections last time when we were in lockdown, I have never seen such high levels of harassment and abuse towards women candidates wow. all online because the election yeah. pretty much had to be run remotely. But I just, like, had not seen that in so many years of being involved in campaigning, just the high levels of um, sexism that so many women candidates of all different political persuasions copped from um, men's rights activists mainly in, um, in undercover codes online, but yeah. just terrible, terrible behaviour. And it seems like there's a different... Um which society's half accepted, there's a different set of rules that apply online. And when you think about the kids, you know, that my boys age and, you know, they're on certain platforms, that there seems to be this gloves off, everyone just does what they like and it's in the cover of the internet and that's okay. And you're like, no, it's not. And 
So trying to bring those conversations to like, here's the real life impact of of those chats or those yeah. commentary. And, you know, you see it on Twitter and you think, wow, people are prepared to, to be quite out there. But they would never say if you were door knocking them, never oh, say yeah. that to you. So why are the rules different and what do we, you know, that's where you see some of the really gendered, um, horrific gender abuse. And so you think, okay, we've got to fix that because that's where a lot of kids are and that's their kind of experience of it. And they, they experience it themselves with some yeah. of the things that are said to them. So it's, yeah, it's and great. we need to hold the platforms to account for allowing that to go Absolutely. on too. Absolutely, yeah. Um, we've heard a bit in recent times about uh, whether today's young women are asserting their rights more than uh, than we did when we were younger, and particularly thinking about the courage that we've seen from Grace Tame and, and Brittany Higgins, but, and there are many, many more. What are your reflections about whether we've seen a, a, a shift in what young women are prepared to take and what they're going to insist um, action be taken on versus what it was like when you were younger? I've got to say, I was just so heartened by going to last year's March. I was just so wrapped to see so many young girls in school uniforms at the March and, you know, just so many generations of women at the one march, I felt like there'd been a regeneration um, of um, you know women activists getting out there, all all different walks of life, and I think we'll see that again this year with the march as well. Yeah, I think it feels different, doesn't it? It feels like mm. there's a different um, way. And maybe you know there was probably some distractions about women leaning in and being in that environment, and now other women are like, "Why are we doing that?" That's you know, and that's great. That's what always happens. Um, it's a bit retro, but, you know, I don't think there was no Beatles without Chuck Berry. You're only a product of what's come before and it's a great opportunity of, you know, what else can be done. But even um, it gives strength to some of us older um, feminists because, you know, I was um, doing a submission to government inquiry on something to do with gender and I was, you know, some of the language we were using, I'm like, no, no, that's, we should consider this and maybe we should and maybe and, and I'm like, no, 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 let's be firm about our language. Let's actually say yeah. no this should happen, that should happen. It's not a case of softly, softly baby steps. So it's just we've hit a point where maybe we're not as wedded to how we have to navigate the room, and that's because the rooms are filled with different people at the moment. Yes. In some spots, they're not in federally, but in other areas, you can have that conversation. There's another woman in the room. It's going to back you in. Um, and that's what's changed a little bit. So I think that's helpful. In our, and it's made me step up and go, actually, our language needs to be firmer on this. This is... We're not doing this baby step stuff anymore. We're going to actually yeah. push a bit harder. And so it's it's great. It's really good to see. Well, when I think about my younger self, I, I know that with the best of intent, I um, I tried to coach, mentor, help other women in the legal profession in particular uh, fit into the culture. And, you know, it was a, it was then and remains, um, not, not at Morris Blackburn, I hasten to add, but remains a very male-dominated culture um the changes that have happened have really been led by government and i really uh, always take my hat off to rob holes who made very deliberate decisions as the state attorney general to appoint women uh, to the bench and uh and promote them as um senior counsel um but i do think about the early conversations i had with other young women entering the profession about how to dress how to behave to your point earlier nat about the advice that your mum was given about never being alone in a room with a particular predator there was uh, there was and still is lots of that in the law and i just hope that these days uh that 
you know, a young Liberty Sanger would not be having those conversations. It would instead be, this is your employer's fault. Like you're up to your employer to do something about this. They've got an obligation to provide you with a safe place of work. It's not up to you to adjust to that culture. That culture is wrong. It's got Mm. to be changed. And you're going to get the support of your union. You're going to get the support of the state. Um, WorkSafe can come in and have a look at it. We can get the Equal Opportunity Commission in. But it's not up to you to be trying to figure out how you duck and weave from those that want to sexually harass or um, make comment or make your your job hard. Um, And I just, you know, having a look at uh, the likes of, of, of Brittany Higgins and Grace Tame, I, I do wonder whether there has been that shift in what young women expect. Yeah. I would also say, though, um, that I think it's still important that we remind ourselves to wrap our arms around uh, Brittany and Grace. Um, I'm really conscious that each of them have spoken about how traumatised they get each time that they need to yeah. speak publicly about what's gone on. And, um, and we're still seeing that, you know, poor Brittany Higgins, um, the, the person who has been the victim of this terrible, uh, I need to say for the purpose of the podcast, alleged sexual assault, um, uh, that she's the one who's got to lead the cultural change through the Australian parliament. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's wrong. wrong. I mean, that, that should be on our prime minister. Yeah. I wouldn't be smiling if I was her. No. Mm. Not to the prime minister. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, look, we uh, we met 12 months ago. We talked about what we'd like to uh, see changed. And, and, Julia, you said that you wanted to see a gender analysis done on every public policy and, and more women in positions of power. And that you said you wanted to see a framework for tackling sexual harassment, both with respect to prevention and, and women having the confidence to speak up, and also action taken um, with respect to victims of crime. How have we fared and what would you like to see when hopefully we're asked back to speak again in 12 months' time? <laughs> uh, well, hopefully. I think this is a real opportunity for women to put themselves first in the federal election. And um, was it Oprah that said it? If uh, someone shows you who they are, believe them. And I think we need to believe there's been that many proof points on this federal government. Um, they do not respect women. They actively um, disrespect women. And I think women need to actually really consider their vote and put themselves first. And that means putting this government last. There's just no other way. Um, We are going backwards. We need to rebuild and rebuild quickly. There's a lot that can be done. And um, Natalie's spoken about all the amazing things the Victorian government's doing on so many levels. Because it doesn't, it's not one policy solution. It is a holistic response that's needed. So um, vote for yourself and put them last. That's my advice. I hope to see, never see again Scott Morrison washing a woman's hair in a oh. hairdresser. <laughs> oh, that was so creepy. That is our sacred safe place. I, I I'd like to say my hairdresser is the best and I no way do I want to see him doing that ever again. So, yeah, I strongly support voting him out so he doesn't get the opportunity <laughs> to continue to undermine women's lives um, <laughs> across the board with um with the various um, budgeting decisions that his government has made that that have not supported and undermined women ongoing. I'm really pleased that our task force into workplace sexual harassment has completed its work and we're in the processes of looking at those recommendations and how we can get them in place. But also I think in 12 months' time I'd love to see a, a better responsive justice system to women who report 
um, sexual harassment and um, sexual violence um, to see that they're not, you know, continued to be traumatised by going through the system, that they feel supported and, and um, that they have the justice served to them. Um, and, of course, I would love to see less of that harassment going on full stop, and that's where, you know, the respect discussion is so important. Well, that sounds like a great place to leave this discussion. Thank you both for another magnificent discussion. Um, there is lots for us to reflect on this International Women's Day. We've got a long way to go. Nat, to your earlier point, we have made some progress. I always feel um, uh, uh, passionate and emboldened by my conversations with each of you. You're both doing such amazing things to make real changes for women. Thank you for your work. Thank you, Stephen, for handing over the podcast to us again today. Uh, it's been a terrific chat. We hope you've all enjoyed it and we look forward to having another chat with you in 12 months' time. Thank you. you. Thanks. Bye. Hey there. Thanks for listening to Socially Democratic. Did you like the podcast? Hit the follow or subscribe button and be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. And to get all the latest updates on Socially Democratic, follow Dunn Street on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And we'll see you next Friday.